believe that worship is our highest call. We are imperfect worshipers of a perfect, awesome, and holy God. As imperfect worshipers, we can lose focus, we can get distracted. And yet, when we find ourselves in the scripture, the Lord reminds us of passages like Psalm 34, 1, where it says, I will bless the Lord at all times His praise shall continually be in my mouth. In other words, we get this challenge that we're to live with this attitude and with this heart of praise. As we think about worship, and as we think about that being a call on our life, I think Psalm 95 really shores up the reality of what worship is and why we are called to be worshipers. So take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Psalm 95. We'll read the whole Psalm together, beginning in verse number one, Psalm 95. Psalm 95, verse number one. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let's enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let's shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand. The mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massa in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though... They had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. With that, let's pray together. Lord, speak to us about the priority of worship And then, God, give us a challenge to be worshipers. Father, speak and move in our hearts today. Draw us close to you. May we give you the praise you deserve in your name. Amen. I love the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is is filled with emotion. There is this transparency that you find and then there is this picture of the great strength and the power and the glory of God. You see that as the psalmist says, Lord, I'm crying out to you and and Lord, man, the evil people are all around me, but God, I know you're in control. There's this constant call to recognize who God is, but the psalms also show us that we can be transparent before the Lord and that we can show and share our emotion before the Lord. 
Now, as we look back to the Old Testament and the sense of worship, and as we think about worship in the Old Testament, for uh, hundreds of thousands of years, there was this picture of worship as, as going on privately, but main aspect of worship was kind of centered around Jerusalem in the temple. And so that we find that people would take pilgrimages each year. And Psalm 120 to 134 are called the songs of ascent, where people, as they were moving up the road, up to higher ground where Jerusalem was, they would be singing and they would be sharing and they would be heading for the temple. But as we find in the New Testament, you know, we, we, we think, yeah, there was a temple. And then when they would get to the temple, there were priests and the priests would offer a sacrifice in the Old Testament. And yet we find how everything is changed when it comes to our worship today because of Jesus. No longer do we have a a, a temple where the Lord manifests his presence. Instead, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 19, it asks the question, Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? You're the temple. No longer do we have to approach God through a priest. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse number 9, it says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. You're a royal priesthood. That we have direct access to God. Through him, we have access to God the Father. And no longer do we bring sacrifices. Somebody brought me a sweet potato pie this morning for Thanksgiving, but nobody brought a lamb or a goat this morning. What we find is, is Romans chapter 12 and verse number one says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So no longer do we have to think about a temple. No longer do we have to go through a priest. And no longer do we bring a sacrifice. Instead, as we worship the Lord, We are the temple, we are the priests, and we are the sacrifice. That's the picture of New Testament worship. That's the picture of what we have because of what Jesus has done. We find that that the veil of the temple at that moment of his, his death was torn in two. And now we have direct access to God in whom we have redemption. Redemption, we have this relationship with him. Through his blood. What we find now is because we have access to God, that should enhance our worship of who he is. But as we look at Psalm 95, I think we get great principles and great truths on what it really means to be a worshiper. So I want us to to kind of lay out three truths on what it means to be a worshiper of the Lord. First off, we find in this passage and throughout scripture that worship is a response That worship is a response. You realize that in Romans chapter 3, it says that there is none who does righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. That man on his own is not seeking after God nor the things of God. But what happens is the Lord begins to take initiative in our life. 1 John chapter 4 reminds us that we love him because he first loved us. And we know him because he revealed himself to us. And we worship him out of understanding who he is. So we think about worship. Worship is 
a response first to who God is. It's a response to who God is. Now, as we look at this passage of scripture, this is a psalm that gives many different pictures of the Lord in it. And it's a response and saying, Lord, I recognize this and I recognize this. And so I want to shout and I want to sing and I want to share emotion because of who you are. So look back with me in Psalm 95 and notice what it says. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Now the word Lord that is in your Bible is in all capital letters because that is the word Jehovah. It comes back to the Old Testament where the Lord speaks to Moses and says, I I am that I am. It is the covenant name of the Lord that says God keeps his promises, that God is always faithful, and that we can go to him. So we shout triumphantly or we shout joyfully to the God who holds us, to the God who's faithful to us, to the God who cannot be anything but faithful and loving to his children. We recognize who he is. But it goes on to say that Next line, he says that we shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Here, the rock of our salvation pictures uh, in, in the Old Testament would have been, hey, man, God delivered us physically from this and God showed himself strong here. For those of us in the New Testament, we recognize that God is the foundation of salvation, that the father sent the son to be the savior of the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. So the father is the foundation of our plan of salvation and sending his son accomplished through Jesus and his death and resurrection, a salvation that we can experience today where there is forgiveness of sin and access to God. What a joy we have that now we can know the covenant God because of what Jesus has done for us. But he goes on. Notice with me in verse number three, the Lord is a great God and a great king. Again, notice those those terms. The Lord's a great God, a great king above all gods. And then he goes on and notice in verse four and five, the depths of the earth are in his hand. The mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it and his hands formed the dry land. What makes God a great king and a great God? A couple weeks ago, I teach the cubbies on Wednesday night. I teach three and four year olds. And uh, I brought a little elephant in and uh, I said, look at this elephant. This elephant has eyes, doesn't it? Yeah. The elephant has ears, don't it? Yeah. Do you think that this elephant's strong? Yeah. Looks like an elephant could be strong. Well, then why don't you pray and worship the elephant? Oh, no, these three and four-year-olds, man, that, whoo, no, we're not worshiping this. You got to rile them up just a little bit here and there. So anyway, and then you send them home to their parents. I mean, this is this is the way this works. I'm practicing on grandparenthood right here, all right? So, so the picture is, is what Isaiah tells us, that the gods of this world, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They may have arms, but they can't help. And the picture is here, is our God is the great God and the great king. Why? Because he made everything. Notice it tells us that the depths are his and the, the tops of the mountains are his. Now, when we think about the, the depths, At the Dead Sea, it is some 1,414 feet below sea level. Many of you have been there. Have you been to Israel? I was there in 2019 there at the Dead Sea, and it's 1,414 feet below sea level. Now, you look at that place, and then we look at the tallest place in the world right now. It's Mount Everest at 29,000, 29 feet above sea level. And you know what the Lord is saying? I'm great, 
And I've got it all. I've got the depths and I've got the mountains. There is not a snowflake on Mount Everest, nor a grain of sand at the bottom of the Dead Sea, or a grain of salt, I should say, even, at the bottom of the Dead Sea, that the Lord does not know about. He knows it all and sovereignly stands in control of all of the world, of vast all of the universe. Then he talks about the seas are his, he made them, and the dry land he formed also. When we think about our our world as we know it, it is about 196,900,000 square miles. So much for Disney's It's a Small World After All, right? Uh, we, we live in a, a, a big, big world. 196,900,000 square miles. About 66 to 70% of that is covered by water. And there's something about the ocean. There's something about being out there. There is the immensity of it. There is the vastness of it. There's something just remarkable about it. And can I tell you, every wave that crashes on the shore speaks of the glory and the power of God. That's what he's saying. And then the dry land, that one third of, of the land mass that is left, there's not anything going on that our Lord is not in completely control of. Psalm 115, verse 3, that God, the king, is on his throne and he does whatever he pleases. Listen, Psalm 97, 1 tells us that the Lord reigns and we need to believe it and recognize it and we worship no matter what's going on around us. We respond to who God is. Secondly, we respond uh, to, to what God does. So we respond not only to who God is, but we respond to what God does. And as we look at this, we don't have time to, to jump into all of this. I know that most of you would like to be home by 2 or 3 o'clock anyway. Uh, but as, as we look at, at what God does, think, think of the amazing truths. Notice in verse number 1, he saves. He's called the rock of our salvation. But notice verse number two, let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Our God saves, but our God allows us into his presence. Did you know that the more powerful someone becomes and the more people that are under them, the less accessible they are? You realize that it happens in the corporate world, that the more powerful they are and the more people they have under them, the less accessible they are. When we think of our government, I don't imagine any of us today could, you know, just call up uh, on the phone and say, you know, I want a meeting with the president this afternoon. We, we don't have that access. We don't have that. And, and the more power someone has, then the less accessible they are. But here we find that the Lord is in control of all things, and yet we can come into his presence. What a privilege. Listen, we're not talking about just having a time before the Lord where I check off a box and say, oh yeah, I read my verses today and, you know, I prayed for my, my uh, kids today or my grandkids or for my test at school. We're talking about we have the opportunity to step into the presence of the God of all creation. The God who knows and is con- in control over all things. That's amazing. He goes on and talks about the Lord as our creator. and But there's something I, I, I want us to see with that as well. 
Notice in, in, in verse number six, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep under his care. If you notice the news this week on Tuesday, they, they predicted that the eight billionth person was born. Eight billion people in our world today. Eight billion. That's amazing. And the Lord knows all of them. But he says, and for those that are his, he is the shepherd and we are under his care. Some of you are walking through some deep valleys today. Some of you are facing transition in life today. Some of you are thankful for Thanksgiving, but there's some hesitation about Thanksgiving because you know that family relationships are tense. And, and so there's just this wonder, is this going to be a time of, of Thanksgiving or overwhelming drama? And the Lord says, look, I'm going to shepherd you and carry you through that even though you walk through the valleys, the valley in the shadow of life and the valley in the shadow of death. We don't have to fear because the Lord our God is with us. That is beautiful. That gives us a reason to worship, to respond to what God does, to respond to who God is. Worship is not only a response, but secondly, we find as we look at this passage that worship is a response from the heart. Worship is a response from the heart. Worship, again, is not just checking off boxes and saying, I read my Bible, I mumbled a few prayers, and, uh, you know, I kind of uh, hummed a, a, a song in, in my mind. That's not the picture. Worship is genuinely a response from the heart. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. The heart is the center of who we are. And Jesus would look at the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 15 and verse number 8 and say, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Hey, you can sit in church and be in a proximity to the preaching of God's word and the singing of, of truth and your heart be far away. Now, we notice in this passage, the Lord is going to confront the worship audience of Psalm 95 by going back to Israel's history and saying, let me give you a lesson from the past. So look at the end of verse number seven and then verse number eight and following. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day as Massa in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. That's tough, tough terms. But notice with me where he says in verse number eight, do not harden your hearts. What we find as worship is response from the Lord is that God desires a soft heart, not a hard heart. It's easy through life circumstances and the challenge to let our heart get hard, to just harden up emotionally. Man, I've been through this and I've seen this and I've experienced this and this person done me wrong and this person hurt me and this person was a liar and, and all of these things go on around me and I allow my heart to harden toward the things of, of earth. But in all of this, I can allow myself to harden toward the things of God. You remember, and he's going to go back to Exodus. In Exodus chapter 14, 
Man, it, it, you, you remember that passage where, where the Lord says to Moses, you know, stand still and I want you to see my salvation. And then Moses raises his hands and says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And the people walk through the Red Sea and Exodus chapter 15, man, they are singing and worshiping and praising. But three days later, everything has changed. Exodus chapter 15. Three days later, Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. They went out into the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days without finding water. They came to Marah. The the water was bitter. And then the people cried out and grumbled to Moses, what are we going to drink? Three days. Three days. Now I'm grumbling and complaining. No longer that heart of worship. In just a matter of three days and not getting what they felt like they wanted, they said, man, Moses, what did you do? Just bring us out here to kill us? Does God want us dead here? Basically. Then in Exodus chapter 16, the Israelite community, the Lord provided water for them at Marah. They leave. And the Israelites say, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into the wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Oh, woe is us. Man, we remember back in Egypt. We just had all we wanted there. What had happened? They had an unbelieving heart and they had a hard heart toward the things of God. So then in Exodus chapter 16, remember, and in Exodus 15, the Lord gives them clean water. Exodus 16, they cry out, the Lord gives them quail and the Lord provides manna. And then in Exodus chapter 17, you think, oh, again? Yep, again. In Exodus chapter 17, verse number 1, they're moving from place to place. They camped at Rephidim, and there was no water. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. And why are you complaining to me, Moses says? Why are you testing the Lord? And then the Lord says this to Moses. And listen, he says, the Lord answered Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck in the Nile with your hand and go. I'm going to stand in front of you on the rock at Horeb, and when you hit the rock, water is going to come out and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders. Okay, we know this story. Moses strikes the rock. But here's here's where we get those two words in Psalm 95, Meribah and and Masa. He says, and the Lord uh, made water come out of the rock. Moses did this in the sight of the Lord and the elders, and he named the place Masa and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Life got hard and they said, God, where are you? So instead of going to the Lord with this sense of, Lord, we call on you. You're the one who brought us out of the, the, out of Egypt. You're the one who restored, uh, us and, and brought us through the Red Sea when we thought the Egyptian army was going to kill us. Instead, their unbelieving heart, their hard heart immediately complains when things don't go their way. I wonder. Anyone like that in our church world? They had a hard heart. So the Lord calls the place testing and quarreling. And he says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. 
And here's the problem. Listen, when you lose that heart of devotion to the Lord, then you lose your direction in the Lord. And let me, let me drive this home in Psalm 95 and as we look at it. Psalm 95, he, he, go back, it says, you know, don't harden your hearts as in the days of Maribah. And then in verse number 10, it says, for 40 years I was disgusted with that generation. They said they are a people whose hearts go astray and they do not know my ways. When we lose our devotion, we lose our direction. And how many people are wondering and saying, God, I want your will for my life. God, I want you to know what you want me to do. And let me just tell you, the best thing to do at that moment, deepen your devotion. Deepen your devotion. Because when you got him, you got direction. When you got him, you got the one who's going to guide you. That, that's why in, in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. Too many of us want to pray for God's direction. And we say something like this, Lord, show me your will for my life. And then I look at it and think, okay, is my will better or is God's will better? What do I really want to do? And if God knows that that is our heart, that we won't listen to him, then why should he even show us? So you want to know God's direction? Deepen your devotion so that a God wants a soft heart, not a hard heart. And God wants a submissive heart, not a straying heart, a stubborn heart, a directionless heart. There's the picture. Worship is a response. Worship is a response. We know that God moves first. Worship is a response from the heart. But then thirdly, worship is a heart. A, a, a response from the heart with expression. Worship expresses. There is expression with worship. What what if you're teaching your child, you know, uh, to, to, to learn to be grateful? And that kid says something like this. Uh, you know, Josh sang this morning. I'll pick on Josh. You did a good job today, Josh. Uh, Josh, uh, I'm teaching Josh how to, to be grateful and, and I want to teach him that. And so I say, Josh, did you say thank you to, you know, Mrs. Jones? If Josh just says to me, well, I felt it in my heart. I would say, no, Josh, you need to say it. You need to express it. You need to tell her. Thank you. Now, worship is one of those things where, as we think about life, God doesn't just want us to have warm, fuzzy feelings in our heart, but God wants us to express, express that thanksgiving, that worship, that heart. And how do we do that? Well, we, we, we can do that, first off, either corporately or personally, Worship can be corporate, like we come in today and, and we sing. We can come in together and worship the Lord. And, and you know what? I mean, there's no, just nothing in the whole wide world like watching someone with their arms folded and mouthing the words, all hail the power of Jesus' name. You know, and I think, dude, what is going on with you? Because if, if that's what you really feel like toward the Lord, 
I wonder what it would be like if the Lord just felt like that five minutes towards you. What would your life fall into in five minutes? But the, the picture is, is, is the Lord then wants us to express that. So corporately, when we come together, there is this thought that we, we sing and we worship together. Notice how this verse starts. Oh, come let us. Do you notice the word us? And the word us is used throughout this. Now we recognize that this is, this is us, a call to corporate praise. There are other times when you know, David says, you know, with my whole heart, I will seek you. It's personal. It's personal. Sometimes people used to call it a quiet time. I don't call it a quiet time. I don't want a quiet time. I want a loud time. I want to read scripture out loud or I want to sing. I want to be loud. And so so we get this picture of corporately and, and personally. But then notice as, as we look here, come let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout to him in song. Worship is expressed corporately and worship is expressed in different ways. How is he showing that here? He's saying shout. Now, most of us, boy, now that makes us uncomfortable in church. Shouting, getting that excited? No, that's, that's what the psalmist says. Matter of fact, I would, I would challenge you to this. You look at all the passages that talk about shouting to the Lord, and you look at all the passages that just say, be still or be quiet. In the book of Psalms, I think I know which one wins. He wants us to show, express. We express corporately, we express personally, we express with, with this, this, this heart of singing in different ways. Singing, shouting. But notice what else he says here. Come let us worship and bow down and let us kneel before the Lord our maker. There is the picture of different ways. Now it's interesting in this passage because when it says, come let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our maker. The word worship really means to fall prostrate before the Lord. So he says, let us fall prostrate before the Lord. Let us worship. And then he says, and let us bow down, which means fall prostrate before the Lord. And then let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So he's saying, let us bow down. Let us bow down. Let us bow down because the Lord is so great and we're so humble before him. That's the picture. So corporately and personally, we express our worship. In different ways, shouting, singing, kneeling. Now, I realize some people say, you know, I just can't sing. I'm not good at singing. Okay. You know, when your name is Buddy and it is getting close to Christmas time, you know who everybody thinks of, right? Yeah, Buddy the Elf. You remember what Buddy the Elf said? I wrote it down. Singing is just like talking, except it's louder and longer, and you make your voice go up and down. Okay? So so if if singing is, is just like talking, but it's louder and longer, and you make your voice go up and down, then make a joyful noise to the Lord. He also said, you know, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is sing loud. Yeah, to, for all to hear. And I think, you know what? It may be the best way that we can share Christian cheer is by coming into worship and saying, man, I'm engaging. I am singing. I am getting with it. I'm putting my heart out there and saying, Lord, no matter what everybody else does today, I am going to be a person who's focused and a person of worship. You might want to try that. Psalm 95. Worship 
is expressed corporately, personally, is expressed in different ways, but it is also expressed with emotion. Notice, let us shout joyfully. There's joy. Let us, let us uh, shout triumphantly. There's this sense of victory. And then let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. And that's where we come this week. We think about thanksgiving. We, we think about the call to be a thankful person. And yet, in just a moment, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we really have something, salvation, and someone, Jesus, our Savior, to be thankful for all year round. Every day, we bless the Lord at all times. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. And the truth is, if you're here today, you say, yeah, I'm here to talk about Jesus. The truth is, is that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we could experience forgiveness and find eternal life, salvation, a personal relationship with God. That's something that no one can take away. That's a gift that lasts for eternity. And the picture is, is we're to come with thanksgiving. So in just a moment, the band's going to come. I'm going to pray. But Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 told us that before we partake of the Lord's Supper, that we need to examine our own hearts to make sure that we take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. I think that he's talking about living a consistent life with what I'm, how I'm living and what I'm saying about Jesus. So some of you today, you may just want to pass on the elements of the Lord's Supper. Or right now, maybe the Lord's saying, you need to get things right. And this is your opportunity. With that, I want to pray. Band's going to come. We're going to have a time of reflection. And as we have that time, this may be a time for you to have meet, a meeting with the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for all that you have done. We recognize that you are great and greatly to be praised. Jesus, thank you for your death on the cross, for your life, for our salvation. And Father, I pray that if someone doesn't know Jesus, that today they would open their life to him. For believers who may be focused on everything else but Jesus, I pray that you draw them back to him today. May they be in wonder and awe of, of your gift of salvation and of his sacrifice for our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.